Chapter Eight of the Biography of a Prairie Girl by Eleanor Gates. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. A Harvest Wedding, the wedding of one of the Dutchman's seven stout daughters to a young farmer who lived in a dugout on the West Fork, was an event in the little girl's life only second in importance to the christening. Two trips to Yankton on the wheat wagon with the biggest brothers shrank into insignificance before it, and she looked forward to its celebration so anxiously that time dragged as slowly as a week before Christmas. The morning of the notable day, she was unable to eat anything through sheer excitement. She passed the hours after breakfast in a restless riding over the barley stubble, where the sheep, led by a black bellwether, who sought the fields because they were forbidden ground, were mincing and picking their way. At eleven, she happily welcomed a gallop to the farthest end of the farm to carry doughnuts and ginger beer to her big brothers. At dinner time, her appetite was poor. But later, after making enough hay twists for her mother's baking, she scraped the cake batter dish clean and partook freely of several yards of red apple peelings. The big brothers came in early from the fields to rest and get ready, and one by one spent half an hour in the kitchen where the big wooden wash tub held the center of the room. When it came time for the little girl to take a bath, the kitchen floor looked like a duck pond, for the tub was almost floating and the well outside was noticeably low. At sunset, the family sat down to supper suggestive of the wedding feast to come. But though there were toothsome sandwiches on the table and cream popovers, not to speak of a heaping dish of watermelon sweet pickles, the little girl again did not feel like eating, and only nibbled at a piece of raisin pie when her mother, not realizing how satisfying the batter and peelings had been, threatened her with staying at home. After supper, the big brothers hitched the gray team to the light wagon, fastened up the chicken coops, latched the barn door, and chained the dogs, and, having finished the chores, blacked each other's boots, brushed the hair slick with water, changed their clothes and resigned themselves to their mother, who put the last touches to their collars and ties. Then, just as a faint bugle call, sounding the advance, was heard from across the prairie to the west, the family climbed into the wagon. On the trip down, the eldest and youngest brothers sat in front and drove. The mother and the biggest brother occupied the hind seat and looked after the piccalili and pies, which they held on their laps. So the little girl had to content herself with staying in the back of the wagon on an armful of hay and let her feet dangle out behind. As the team trotted south over the rough path that, at the schoolhouse, joined another leading to the Dutchman's, she clung to the sideboards in impatient silence, her eyes turned across the sloughs toward the vermilion, where, through the starlight, were coming the chaplain, some troopers, and the colonel's son. It was a still night, and the family could hear other wagons approaching from various directions, the distant whinnying of ponies traveling singly, the barking of the Dutchman's dogs, and the thudding gallop of the nearing cavalry mounts and when they arrived the same shouts that greeted them welcomed a score of their neighbors and the dusty army men the moments that followed were memorable ones to the little girl standing on tiptoe with only the neighbor woman between her and the colonel's son she saw the chaplain unite the dutchman's daughter and the young farmer the ceremony took place in the yard so that all might witness it and the biggest brother held the lantern by which the chaplain read from his prayer book the guests gathered about quietly and listened reverently to the service and to the prayer for health and happiness in the dugout home on the fort and when the kissing, handshaking, and congratulations were over, they moved across the yard to the kitchen door, where they drank hearty toast to the bride, and coffee cups foaming high with beer. Then the married men took their wives, and the unmarried, their sweethearts, and went into the house to open the party. The Dutchman's habitation was different from his neighbor's homes. One roof sheltered his family, his oxen and his cows, his harvested crops, his poultry and his pigs. It was a shanty roof, and it covered a long, sawed building that began, at the river end, with the sitting room continued through the bedroom, the kitchen, the granary, the stable, and the chicken coop, and was completed by the pig house, 
The Dutchman, his wife, and their daughters could go back and forth from the best room to the beasts without leaving its cover. So no matter how deep the snow was, the cattle never lacked for fodder, the hens for feed or the hogs for their mash, a boiler of which, sour and funny, cooked winter and summer upon the kitchen stove. And when the fiercest of blizzards was blowing, the family were in no danger of getting lost between the house and the barn. The three rooms of the building that were nearest the Vermilion, though given different names, were really all bedrooms. A high four-poster of unplaned boards stood against the low back wall of the sitting-room, beneath the rack that held the Dutchman's pipes. The sleeping-room, which the four eldest occupied, held two smaller beds. And in the kitchen, where the family ate their breakfasts of coffee cake and barley coffee, their dinners of souse and vegetables and hard bread broken into a pan of clabbered milk, and supped, without plates, around a deep bowl of stew, was a wide couch that belonged to the youngest three. But on the night of the wedding, the first two rooms were empty, except for benches, the beds having been taken down early in the day and piled up beside the haystacks back of the stable. The couch in the kitchen was left in its place, however, and was covered from head to foot with babies. The house was lighted by barn lanterns, hung out of the way, under the shingles, at the upper ends of the bare, sloping roof joists, and their dull flames, that leaped and dipped with the moving feet beneath them, shone upon walls clean and bright with a fresh layer of newspapers, and revealed, to whomever cast a glance upward, the parcels of herbs, seeds, and sowing thrust here and there in handy crevices of the brown cobweb ceiling. The Dutchman's neighbors crowded the rooms to the doors. In the kitchen were the older woman, keeping watch over the couch, and at the same time, with a busy clatter and half a dozen tongues, unwrapping the edibles brought for the wedding supper. In the doorway, between the other rooms, sat the eldest brother playing his fiddle, the Irishman twanging a Jew's harp, and Frenchy with the bones and on each side of them danced the guests. The newly made bride and her husband led the quadrille in the sitting-room, opposite a trooper and the neighbor-woman. The Swede had as his partner the new teacher, a young lady from St. Paul, and the biggest brother had his mother. Above them, as they promenaded, balanced, and swung, waved the black felt hat that the Dutchman had worn when he took his long trip over the prairie to invite them. Each family he visited had pinned a ribbon to its rim, and now it swayed back and forth, a gay and very-colored challenge to the hands reached out to grasp it. Farmy Chaplin was in the next room, and as the quadrille closed in a roistering polka and a waltz struck up, he clapped in time to the couples that were circling before him, their hands on each other's shoulders, and their voices joined merrily with the music. In Lauterbach hab ich mein Strumpf verloren, und ohne Strumpf gehe ich nicht heim. Ich gehe doch wieder zu Lauterbach hin und kauf mir einen Strumpf für mein Bein. Now and then a couple drew aside and sat down a moment to rest, but soon they were back on the floor again, whirling and laughing and stamping their feet, and raising clouds of dust from the rough plank floors to their scarlet faces. Out of doors there was less noise, but no lack of fun. Smudge fires burned in a wide circle about the house to repel the hungry mosquitoes that, with high and monotonous battle songs, stormed the smoky barrier between them and the inner circle of horses and oxen feeding from wagon boxes. Near the building, and set about the carefully raked yard on barrels and boxes, were jack-o'-lanterns made of pumpkins, that gave out the uncertain, flickering light of tallow dips through their goggle eyes and grinning mouths. In and out among the wagons, fires and lanterns, the children were playing hide-and-go-seek, screaming with excitement as they scampered in every direction to secret themselves, or lying still and breathless as the boy who was it hunted them cautiously, with one eye searching for moving shadows and the other fixed upon the wagon-wheel that was the goal. On being sent out of the house to give the dancers room, the boys had raised a joyous clamor over their banishment, and begun a game of crack the whip, whilst the girls, not wishing to soil their clothes, had walked to and fro in front of the house, with their arms around each other, and watched the dancing. But when the sweet boy, who was chosen for the snapper, was so worn and breathless with being popped from the end of the rushing line that he could run no longer, 
boys and girls joined in playing tag and blind man's bluff, and afterward hide-and-go-seek. The little girl was with them, but so far, in spite of her white dress, which made her an easy prey, she had not been caught. The boys who had taken their turns at the wheel had caught other boys whom she did not know, and had always managed to find and, with much struggling, kiss the particular girls they favored. No matter how conspicuously she had hidden, they had always passed her by. As a result, after two or three disappointments, she had not taken the trouble of running to cover, but had either lingered just within the sitting-room to watch the dancing, or hung wistfully about the yard, somewhere near the colonel's son. Frenchy's brother was now guarding the goal, and the little girl's ambushed behind the very straw pile that concealed the colonel's son. It was an occasion that she had looked forward to and secretly brought to pass. Yet, as she knelt close beside him, she could not think of one of the polite things she had planned to say to him that night. Their proximity struck her dumb. While he was silent through fear of being discovered, so they cowered together, speechless and restive, until the Swede boy tore by an unsuccessful race for the wagon wheel. Then the colonel's son darted out from behind the straw, and she remained regretfully looking after his blue-clad form. All at once her meditations were rudely interrupted. Frenchy's brothers, skulking here and there on the lookout for a bright tell-tale apron, came round the pile and pounced upon her. Forfeit! Forfeit! he cried, dragging her out into the middle of the yard. She tried to pull away from him and twisted her head so that her face was out of reach. You stop, she cried hotly. You just stop. The struggle was sweet to him, however, and he only laughed at her angry commands and fought harder than ever for his due, striving at every turn to pin her arms down so that she could not resist. The boys ran up to urge him on, and the girls hopped up and down in their enjoyment of the scuffle. But he was not able to win in the contest. The little girl was a match for him. What she lacked in strength she made up in nimbleness, and she stood her ground fiercely, wrestling on until, with a quick and furious wrench, she freed herself from his hold and bolted toward the kitchen. Frenchy's brother pursued her, but once inside she was safe, for he dared not enter and scramble across the couch to where she had sought refuge by a window. So he turned back toward the goal. "'I'll get you yet!' he shouted, wiping his damp face on his shirt-sleeve. The other children gathered about him and taunted him with his failure. To write himself in their eyes, he set after one of the Dutchman's girls, who took off her wooden shoes and fled frantically in circles to evade him. But he succeeded in catching her and taking a forfeit from one of her sun-bleached braids, after which he went to the wagon and sat down on the tongue to rest. The game went on. It was the Swede's boy's turn at the goal, and he put his hands over his face and began to count as the children scattered. Tain, twenty, thirty, forty, fifty, he chanted, sixty, seventy, eighty. As he told the numbers, he stealthily watched the kitchen window where the little girl stood. The neighbor woman's boy, who was hiding under the wagon and almost at his feet, saw him peeking through his fingers and jumped out to denounce him. King's X, King's X, he cried, holding out one hand. It's no fair, he's looking. I bain not, declared the Swede boy, stoutly wheeling about. You're late, may alone. You are, too, persisted the other, springing away to hide again. The sweet boy once more resumed his chanting, and the little girl, as she leaned from her vantage point to listen, wished that she might return to the yard and take part in the game. But Frenchy's brother, though tired with his struggles, was still sitting menacingly on the wagon tongue, and she dared not leave her cover. Suddenly the sight of a slat sunbonnet, hanging on a nail beside her, suggested a means of circumventing him. She took it down and put it on, tying the strings under her chin in a hard double knot. The long, stiff pasteboard slats buried her face completely, and nobody but Luffrey, with his sharp muzzle, could have reached her cheeks to kiss them. So she sallied bravely into the yard. The Swede boy had been counting slowly in the hope that she would hide, and when he saw her approaching he paused a moment, expecting Frenchy's brother to renew the attack. But the figure on the tongue never moved, even when the little girl, with the saucy swish of her skirts, 
paused daringly near it. So he sang out his last call. Boshel of wheat, bushel of rye, who ain't ready, holler I. I, shouted the little girl, whisking triumphantly away, and the Swede boy began to count again. She entered the house, going in at the sitting room. He followed her movements as she threaded her way through the dancers toward the empty granary, and saw her sunbonnet past the bedroom windows and the open kitchen door. Then once more he sent out the last call. This time there was no response, so after a hasty examination of the wagon, he began to creep about with an impressive show of hunting. Often he came upon a new calico dress trailing in a dusty place, but passed its whereabouts if he had not seen her. He surprised the colonel's son curled up in a box beneath a jack lantern and distanced him to the wagon. Then he went on, searching for a girl, and the boys, clustered about the wheel, watched him as he sneaked through the yard. Finally, when he judged that time enough had passed to warn it, he made a wider search that brought him close to the granary door. His courage almost failed him as he passed in front of it, and he was glad when the delighted squeals of two girls, who were running towards the goal, gave him an excuse to delay his entrance. But when the girls had tapped the wheel, he bounded back, and spurring himself on, stepped within the dark room, where, in a far corner, he caught a faint glint of white. He walked toward it timidly. It moved, and he stood still. "'Yo there,' he asked, at last, his throat so dry that he could hardly find the words. A subdued giggle answered him. He recalled how kind and comrade-like she had been to him three months before when they had caught gophers together, and his spirits rose. "'Yo there,' he asked again. Suddenly she came from her corner and attempted to pass him. Emboldened by the darkness, he put out his arms and stopped her, and she laughed gaily up at him. He laughed shyly back and dropped her arms. She made no effort to get away. He stood still, awkwardly cracking his knuckles. "'Why don't you fight?' she demanded. He did not reply, but shuffled his feet and cracked his knuckles harder than ever. The music of a waltz floated into them over the babble of the kitchen, and he turned his head that way as if to listen. As he did so, she crept past him, her eyes sparkling with fun from the depths of her bonnet. When he turned back to look at her, she was gone. He followed her out and paid no attention to the jeering inquiries of the other children, and as the colonel's son began to count from the wagon wheel, he walked slowly past the teams and smudges, and across a strip of backfire beyond to the high, dry grass, where he lay on his back for the rest of the evening, looking sadly up at the stars. The little girl saw a hiding place, too, behind a haystack on the other side of the house. The colonel's son had seen her run that way, and as he sounded the final challenge, his voice had a victorious ring. He began a second mock hunt, but it was a short one, for fearful that he might stumble upon one of the Dutchman's younger brood, he first penetrated the outer darkness to find a boy, then round round the house in the direction taken by the little girl. He came upon her unexpectedly as he circled a stack. She was crouching in plain sight against the hay, her face still hidden in the recess of the bonnet. He rushed up to her and took her by the shoulders. "'I've got you,' he said, but so low that the neighbor woman's daughter, who was just a few steps away behind the fanning mill, could scarcely hear him. "'Yes,' stammered the little girl. She drew back and looked down, all her assurance supplanted by a wild desire to get away. "'Going to let me have my forfeit?' he whispered, shaking her a little. The sunbonnet drooped until its wide cape stood up stiffly above her curls. "'I hate that old French boy,' she said. A colonel's son moved closer, and a wisp of brittle grass in her hands crackled in a double grasp. She glanced up at him swiftly, as she felt his touch, and this time there was a nearing of the white frock to the suit of blue. "'Well, if, if, you gotta,' she added. But the colonel's son, as he bent over her with all the gallantry of his nine years, had to learn by experience what Frenchy's brother had divined at a glance. The sunbonnet was in the way. He was equal to the emergency, however, and hesitated only for a moment. Then he put his hand into his trousers pocket and took out his clasp knife. 
He could hear someone at the goal calling him, and there was a rattle of dishes in the house, for the music had ceased for a moment, that told him that plates were being passed for supper. He knew that, in a moment, either the chaplain or the boys would be searching for him. She heard the calls and clatter, too, yet she did not move except to raise her head until the bonnet strings were in plain sight under her dimpled chin. When he saw them, he straightened out his knife with a click and leaned once more toward her. The fiddle was playing the opening strains of the supper dance now, and a hundred voices were singing with it, so the neighbor woman's daughter, who was peering from behind the fanning mill, hurried away to the house. And thus it came about that no one but a vagrant night-hawk, perched high on the top of the stack, remained near enough to hear the sawing sound of dull knife-blade making its way through the cloth. In the early morning hours, as the gray team jogged homeward past the deserted schoolhouse, the big brothers and their mother discussed the wedding, the dancing, and the supper. But the little girl, snugly wrapped in a quilt on the hay behind, lay still and silent, and only smiled when the night breeze from the west bore to her ear the clear notes of the departing bugle blowing a sweet retreat. End of A Harvest Wedding